Welcome to Cup of Cubby Blue, your off-season home for Cubs news, updates, and banter. We're the official podcast of Bleed Cubby Blue, which is part of the SB Nation family of team sites. And you can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Bleed Cubby Blue. You can also find us at bleedcubbyblue.com. And we blast every episode and related content from our Twitter at Cup of Cubby Blue. I'm Sarah Sanchez. I write about baseball at Bleed Cubby Blue and Baseball Prospectus. And this is like the coolest episode ever for two reasons. But first up, I need to wish a happy birthday to my podcast partner in crime, Andy. Are you having a great day? I am. Hello, everyone. This is my, let's see, the first anniversary of my 40th birthday. So this is like a redo <laughs> for me because my 40th birthday was not great. So we're going to try this again. So yes, I'm having a great day. And I'm super excited because my present is in the form of our guest. Yeah, so let's uh, talk about that for a second. Um, So our final episode for 2019 is today, and we are so thrilled to have a special guest to look at some of the biggest changes in store for the Cubs for next season. If you watch Cubs baseball, you will absolutely recognize one of the best broadcasters in baseball, Len Casper, who's joining us today. Len, thanks for being here. Happy holidays and happy birthday to you, Andy and uh, Sarah. Great to to join you both and uh, talk some baseball in the dead of winter. <laughs> I know like we need baseball here, during we need baseball during this frigid time. <laughs> I'm I'm in St. Louis, Len. I don't know if you know this or not. I'm in St. Louis, and it is literally 65 degrees here right now. Yeah, it's uh, been pretty mild in Chicago today. A little cooler, but no snow on the ground. So we've had probably eight or nine days in December alone that would have been doable on opening day in, uh, in April at Wrigley field. It's, it's kind of bizarre, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I just hope that, uh, January and February are not as brutal as they tend to be in the Midwest. Well, you, you all are lucky. I'm here in Utah. We have about six inches of snow on the ground. We had a white Christmas and it just kind of keeps adding on each night I wake up and there's new snow outside. <laughs> Well, we'll get snow at some point. It's just a matter of how much and when. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Can it wait till after CubsCon so I can get there safely? That's all I need. <laughs> no, it's usually that weekend. When, uh, no. Cubs convention weekend is typically the worst weather weekend of the year. And it's That's almost so by true. design, again. So you can think about warm weather in summer. Oh, goodness. Okay, well, then just let me get there. And if I get stuck there, that's fine. But I just need to get there. <laughs> got it. Got it. That's so true. I feel like every year I'm at the hotel looking outside at the frozen river and just praying that I can stay inside all day. Uh, Andy, what? it's your birthday. Kick us off. All right, Len. So because we get to listen to your voice all the time, it's so wonderful. I love it. I'm like on cloud nine right now. Um, I have a lot of people that are jealous of me getting to talk to you today. I need to know, because this is something we ask guests sometimes, what is your first or your favorite baseball memory growing up? And it can be either playing or watching or, or whatever, whatever strikes you. I, I would like to know that memory for you. I mean, I have a few. I know my parents took me to Tiger Stadium when I was probably four or five years old, and the Tigers were playing the Milwaukee Brewers, and it happened to be right at the end of Hank Aaron's career. And uh, I don't believe Hank was in the lineup that day, and I have a very, very vague, fuzzy recollection of being uh, at the ballpark. But most of my my baseball memories as a kid are in the early 
uh, to mid eighties, uh, didn't go to a lot of games, but, you know, really watching on television and getting cable for the first time. And the big deal for us was being able to watch Cubs games on WGN in Michigan, uh, Braves games on TBS. Uh, and then I think WOR, we had channel nine in uh, New Secaucus, New Jersey. And, uh, I believe they carried Mets games too. So to be able to see local, uh, you know, broadcasts that weren't just, you know, the NBC game of the week was a huge deal for me and kind of cemented my, my baseball fandom. Uh, and then I guess if I had to come up with my, my favorite moment as a, as a kid, before I graduated from high school, my, uh, my dad and I did a two city, one day, uh, baseball trip. We, we did, uh, twins and tigers at, uh, tiger stadium in front of about 44,000, uh, day game. I believe it was a Wednesday or a Thursday in 1987. And then we left in about the seventh inning and drove to Cleveland and saw the Brewers and the Indians that night. And it happened to be one of Paul Molitor's uh, hit streak games. I think it was like game 36 oh, wow. or 37. He would get to 39 that year before uh, the streak was broken. So that was kind of a fun memory from my childhood uh, going to uh, a couple games in two cities in one day with my dad. Wow. How neat. That is, that is really cool. Yeah, I am. Um, I, as a person who grew up in rural Utah, I am like, I totally relate to the WGN TBS thing. It was outstanding to be able to watch all of those games as a kid and just come home from school and the Cubs were on listening to Harry and Steve Stone talk about the Cubs. It's like what I remember most growing up. In fact, that leads into my first question for you, which is, you know, this is uh, this last season was the last year that WGN will be carrying Cubs games. We're moving into this world with the marquee network and everything I've read says that y'all are coming back. I hope that that is true. <laughs> Len and JD, it will, like you all are going to be with us next year, right? Yeah, we will. And you know, there will be uh, some new faces and voices on a, a 24 hour uh, Cub channel. Uh, I think production wise, it's going to be outstanding. Um, I, 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 my gut tells me it'll have a little bit of an MLB network vibe to it for Cub fans. And I think MLB Network does does great work. Um, Mike Santini is the executive producer. He came from MLB Network. Mike McCarthy is the general manager. Um, you know, basically, uh, I believe, started MSG Network and has, has, has been a, a titan in the industry. And uh, so I think it'll be kind of a full-service channel for Cub fans around the country. And I'm looking forward to, to kind of being a part of this on the ground floor, um, but also looking back at 72 years of WGN, also a long relationship with uh, NBC Sports Chicago and uh, a nice five-year run with, with Channel 7 as well. Uh, so we'll, we'll miss uh, working with uh, a lot of those folks at those stations. But, you know, the good news is, you know, we'll still be on uh, every day. And for Cub fans, they'll find one channel as opposed to having to figure out, okay, what channel are they on today? So that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm the person in my friend group that always had to answer the, what channel are the Cubs, is the Cubs game on right now, Sarah? <laughs> so that'll be nice. Okay. So Len, you are one of my favorite followers on Twitter, like always so insightful, very knowledgeable and extremely witty and just very honest. And I love that. You're a great follow. I always get good stuff from your tweets. 
last year you put out a tweet where um, and it was April 1st, so I don't think anything too horrible had, had had happened in a game yet. But you had said that it was a rule for you or for baseball broadcasting to always have fun, no matter what the score was, no matter what was happening in the game, was always to have fun. I don't know if you've listened to our podcast, but Sarah and I are pretty good at that. <laughs> we always have fun. So I'm curious because this season provided us a lot of ups and downs as far as you know, really high, really low games that we kind of felt like it was falling apart and games where we felt like it was coming together. What is one really great memory that you had of this season, whether it be a guest, a story that was told that you were able to go back and forth with JD on something that happened during the game, just something that stood out to you in this season. That was a great memory for you. Hmm. It's funny. My my memories tend to be better about, you know, games that were a decade ago and like last year uh, is kind of a blur at this point, but I'm sure uh, if I think hard enough about some things that happened, um, I mean, Castellanos was so much fun. Oh my that, gosh. I just think his season, uh, you know, the two months he, or three months he spent with the Cubs, whatever it was, I mean, just ridiculous how good he was. And, it's it's amazing that it didn't translate into more wins, but you know I think the joy he played with uh, was was unbelievable, and just you know the, the offense really needed that spark, and I thought he he gave it to them. I remember kind of the Cubs' last stand was the sweep against the uh, the Pirates in mid September. Uh, they scored 17, I believe, in Game One, 14 in Game Two, and 16 in Game Three. Uh, and the Cubs were two games out uh, after that series. And unfortunately, the, the big losing streak happened shortly after that. But at that moment, it, it kind of felt like with two weeks to go, the Cubs were going to get to the playoffs uh, and, and, you know, maybe if not win a division, get in on, via the wild card. Uh, it didn't happen that way, but I think, you know, because it's a day-to-day -day business, walking out of the ballpark on whatever it was, September 14th or 15th, I think everybody felt really good about the Cubs' chances. Well, Yeah, that I was a super fun series. Oh, my gosh. It was like football scores every day. Yeah. Um, I have to say, when you're talking about Nicholas Castellanos, you came to the right place because <laughs> he is my absolute favorite. I actually came home from work today and put on my Big Stick Nick obvious shirt because um, it's my birthday and my wish is to also have him wish me happy birthday. I know it probably won't happen, but as soon as you said his name, I was like, my day is done. I'm, 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 I'm absolutely complete now. I, this is perfect. Great day. So yes, Nicholas Castellanos, we are big fans. Do you see him getting re-signed with the Cubs? I always reserve the right to, to say anything's <laughs> possible, but uh, the fact that he is coming off such a great finish. He has Scott Boris as, as his agent. Uh, there are 29 other teams that are in the bidding. Um, I would be pleasantly surprised if he returns uh, just because some other team can probably go a little above and beyond money-wise uh, to get him. But I always hold out the possibility that he says, you know, that extra year or the extra few million dollars is not the end of the world and I would rather be in a place I was comfortable. So it's it's definitely possible. You know, I thought the White Sox might have been in on him, but it uh, looks like Edwin Encarnacion 
is probably uh, going to be with the White Sox. So that probably takes them out of the mix. So you never know. And the longer it goes, I think the better chance uh, that the Cubs could be in there. But um, I would be more surprised than not if he ends up back with the Cubs. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm sort of feeling that way, too, although I will say I felt that way about Dex in 2016. And on my birthday, the Cubs gave me a Dexter Fowler signing at spring training. And that was pretty much the greatest thing that had happened to date for me as a Cubs fan. So, Andy, we'll we'll just keep holding out hope. Maybe we'll get a late Nicholas Castellano signing. (laughs) I have my fingers crossed. Um, Andy talked about how much fun you all have, and I just, you and JD just have such great chemistry up there, particularly, you know, he's got a lot of his, um, inside jokes. He tells a lot of Seinfeld jokes that I know my dad appreciates. Um, how fun is it to work with JD? Oh, it's great. He's curious, very smart, not afraid to say, I don't know, which is rare in our sport and our business kind of comes out of left field with a lot of things I know there are a lot of things I can kind of get him to to perk up or laugh or be intrigued by I think he kind of plays the same game with me we really don't talk a lot about those conversations off the air before we do it on the air because it's better to do it in the spur of the moment organically and have a genuine response and if you if you revisit a topic that you've discussed off the air, it just loses a little bit of something. So, uh, you know, not every broadcast team works that way. Uh, some announcers don't like surprises, and they would rather have all the prep they, they can for whatever's being thrown at them. JD does not work that way, and I love it. And I think doing it every day uh, for one team on a local uh, broadcast level, it it gets you to know him right you feel like at the end of the day you know who he is and he's the same way off the air that he is on the air and that's what I love about him that's awesome um oh Andy go ahead I was just gonna say so um as you heard me say I, I live in St. Louis so um my children are I have three daughters they're kind of split fans but I will say that growing up for them like you guys are their Harry Carey and Steve Stone. Like you and JD are that to them. So when they, when I got to tell them that we were talking to you today, they were like so excited. Like it, it, to me, it's just huge that I instill that in them and they get to have that with me, the memories of watching baseball and listening to you guys. And I could not pick better guys for them to listen to and learn baseball from. Like it's really special. Well, that's really uh, nice to hear. And it, you know, I never uh, take that stuff for granted, and you know, it's 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 an honor, and it's a it's a big responsibility, uh, you know, to to know that our voices are heard in people's households for you know an entire summer, and uh, we don't take it lightly uh, by any stretch. Um, you know, I definitely feel like uh, you know getting to know Cub fans. They want you to be genuine. They want you to be real. They want you to be you. And that has meant a lot to me. Uh, And, you know, I think JD feels the same way for sure that uh, Cub fans wouldn't want it any other way. So, um, you know, I love that. And uh, hearing that means a lot. 
I'm going to switch things up for just a second here. One of the other big moves aside from the new network is that we have a new manager and a lot of new coaches in town. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on how David Ross will be as the manager of the team. I know you got to see him much up close as a player and what you think about some of the coaching staff moves so far this off season. Well, I'm looking forward to getting to know a lot of the new guys. Uh, obviously David is someone familiar to everybody. Um, uh, Craig Driver will be the new first base coach and, uh, you know, adding to the catching instructing along with uh, Mike Borzello, who's been here a while. Will Venable uh, moves over to third base. Really going to miss Brian Butterfield, who uh, I'm glad for him is, is staying with Joe Madden. But uh, one of my favorite coaches I've ever been around, one of my favorite people, uh, obviously Tommy Hottavy's back, uh, Anthony Iaposi, Termel Sledge, Andy Green, the former manager of the, of the Padres, will be. Uh, David Ross's right-hand man, the, the bench coach, very smart. Chris Young, uh, you get a big league pitching coach to be the bullpen coach. Uh, and I, I don't know Chris, um, but I know of him and, and comes with very high marks. And then Mike Napoli, uh, you know, who had a really good major league career, good offensive player, is going to be the quality uh, assurance coach. So there are a lot, a lot of new faces. Uh, on this on this coaching staff, uh, and they also will add Kyle Evans to the traveling group, um, who kind of brings the the uh, the numbers and the data to to the mix. And Kyle's been with the organization now, I think eight or nine years, and uh, I know him well, and and will do a good job. So it's it's a good group, um, quality wise, it's excellent, and quantity it, it it's big, and that's the way it's gone here over the last few years is more. Uh, you know, support uh, for all the players. I think two hitting coaches is really essential uh, to have, you know, guys who want to work in different groups. Uh, the, those two guys are in the cage every single day. Uh, I think they'll take more batting practice on the field uh, than they have in years past and have a little more structure that way under the new manager. Um, but I'm looking forward to getting to know the, the guys that I haven't met and uh, don't know well. So, the Cubs have taken on quite a few new coaches, but, you know, we were told the past couple off seasons that player wise, things would look different, that there would be moves made, um, that they're looking at production and they really want to, to focus on, um, you know, making sure that the right guys are on the field and the guys that can really come through in, in big spots and, and that sort of thing, just because there's been a lack of that um, when it comes down to some of these points. So, one of the big things that people have been talking about this off season is the possibility of trading Bryant to be able to, to get some of those pieces back on the field for the Cubs. What, what are your thoughts on that? And, and where do you stand on that? Cause I know it's easy when you're in the booth and you're working to talk facts and talk about what's out there, but you as a fan, as somebody who watches this team day in and day out, how how do you feel about the talk of possibly moving Bryant? Well, first of all, I trust uh, the front office implicitly, and I don't think if if they if they do trade one of the core pieces that they would do it uh, lightly or without a lot of thought. Uh, you know, the Chris Bryant's of the world, uh, Wilson Contreras's, Kyle Schwarber's. Uh, these are their guys, um, and you know, Bryant is the name that has come up maybe more often than, than anyone's uh, due to his contractual situation. The fact that he's now in his arbitration 
years and you know is likely to command hundreds of millions of dollars when he does become uh, a free agent but when you have someone like a Chris Bryant on your roster and someone under control I assume for the next two seasons possibly one but I, I would be surprised if they win the appeal uh, that's very attractive to another uh, organization and you would have to give up a lot in order to acquire uh, someone of his caliber. I would be surprised if some sort of deal like that occurs, if the the return would be low-level prospects because the Cubs are still very much in their championship window. Uh, I would expect what the Cubs get in return would be major league-ready players, multiple players, probably a pitcher or two, maybe a young position player prospect. But, you know, I think quantity-wise, you're going to get a lot uh, in return for Chris Bryant. So, you know, in order to, to make a blockbuster deal and to bring in some pieces that can help in multiple areas, you have to be able to give up something. So I, I don't think it's a done deal that he's going to be traded. I don't think they would do it unless they hit their mark in terms of what they feel they have to get in return. Um, but I also believe that a paradigm shifting type trade uh, is something very possible. And, you know, Bryant is, in my opinion, you know, probably the best player on the team. If you look at his career to date and, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, wins above replacement numbers he has, has provided, I think his defensive versatility uh, is a big deal. And some people thought it would actually be a minus uh, the year he won the MVP. I, I thought it was nothing but a plus that he could play the corner spots in the infield, you know, all three spots in the outfield and could even spot you at shortstop on an occasion. So um, I'm as big a Chris Bryant fan as anybody. And if, if he does get dealt, that'll be sad on a very personal level for me because I've gotten to know him very well and he's everything you want in a major league baseball player. But I also understand where the Cubs are in this place and time and what has happened the last few years, they may feel it necessary to kind of mix things up. So I think that's a big question right now heading into spring training in you know, six weeks to eight weeks is what sort of big deal do the Cubs have up their sleeve and what will this roster look like after such a deal is potentially made? You know, just to follow up to that, because I agree with you that they seem to be wanting to do a big deal. I I've sort of gotten the impression um, looking at some of these trade rumors and listening to various people talking about them, it seems like other teams just haven't been willing to meet their price on some of these players, like a Bryant or a Contreras or a Schwarber. I wonder if you think that's going to change as we head into spring training, or if you think that other teams are finally going to, you know, that the third base market is going to dry up after Donaldson signs, the catching market is pretty dry right now. I mean, both of those are huge assets and maybe somebody will be willing to part with an MLB ready uh, player plus some top 100 prospects for either one of those two players. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I think that's uh, that's the big question. And I don't know if the Cubs know the answer to that. I I definitely believe they laid some groundwork uh, at the winter meetings uh, in terms of that. Um, But the last few winners have gone, you know, pretty strangely in that a lot of the free agent uh, signings occurred late. 
so maybe this year it's trades end up being later and the free agent signings happened uh, a lot earlier. Um, but I, I just I think this this front office is patient. They don't overreact. Uh, the 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 real kind of quote reach moves have been made during seasons when they've tried to add to the current group and and go for it and win it. And it worked in 2016 in the uh, Aroldis Chapman Glaber Torres deal. Uh, I think you know mixed returns on the on the Quintana, uh, Eloy Jimenez, Dylan Cease uh, move, and and we might not really be able to to say for sure who won that deal. Um, but I think the fact that Quintana is a part of a rotation that's probably going to need another arm and is someone you have been able to count on uh, is is a plus. And the other thing is, if the Cubs didn't make that deal in 17, the Brewers may have. And so right. the Cubs may have been aced out completely of the playoffs that year, even though they didn't win the World Series. Uh, so I, I think there have already been positive returns on that deal. But, you know, those kind of reach deals where you're you're giving up future you know, I think the Cubs are in the opposite mindset right now, where if they give up a known commodity, it is to get someone who could maybe help this year, or next year, but mainly for the long term, you know, for the next five, six, seven, eight years. Uh, that's why it's tricky, because you're trying to get prospects who may not be 19, 20 years old and may be close to getting to the big leagues, but you also don't necessarily want someone who's three or four years into his big league career and then the cost. Uh, becomes potentially prohibitive. If you're going to make a Bryant deal, I would imagine cost-wise, you're going to be on the upside bringing in younger players who don't come with as, as heavy a price tag. All right. That's a good place for us to take a quick break. On the flip side, we're going to look at some of the new rules that MLB is looking at implementing for the 2020 and 2021 seasons. And we're going to have a few more questions for Len Casper. But first, a few words from our sponsor. And we're back. One of the things that I thought was really interesting coming out of winter meetings was this new three batter minimum rule. And I actually was talking, my mom's become a huge Cubs fan. I was talking with her about this today. She loves this rule. She absolutely hates that there are like pitchers that come in for just one guy and get pulled and that there's commercials all the time. But I think this sort of fundamentally changes how people are going to stack their bullpens and what type of strategy uh, managers can use with their lineups. What do you think of the three batter minimum and some of the other changes coming out of winter meetings, Len? I, I generally like it. I don't think it's going to have the impact people tend to think it will. We actually are getting a little more away from, you know, one batter matchups. The fact that it does reset at the end of an inning. Most of the time when a, when a manager brings a relief pitcher into a game in the middle of an inning to get a guy out. Uh, it's either to end the inning or get, you know, a second out. Um, there are not as many spots in which it's, you know, one out in the inning, nobody on base, lefty, lefty, and then he gets him out, bring in a righty to get a righty out. Uh, it, it feels like five, six, seven years ago, it was more uh, often that we would see that. So it, in some ways, could potentially end the careers of guys who are loogies or right-on-right specialists, but it also opens opportunities for guys who are pretty good in terms of left-right splits. Uh, I do think that it is a momentum killer for fans on an aesthetic level when you have two or three or four pitching changes in the middle of an inning. 
I think as important as the three batter minimum is the new September roster rules. Uh, we're going to go to 26, uh, 13 max with pitchers prior to September 1st, and then at 28 once we get into the final month of the season. To me, when rosters were at 33, 34, that's when it got into kind of ridiculous time with guys using nine, 10 relief pitchers uh, to cover nine innings after a starter had already gone four or five. That, that, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So you might actually ride your starter uh, a little longer. Uh, instead of taking them out after six innings, you might have the starter begin the seventh and see if you can buy another out or two to, to give your relief core a little bit of a break. I think that's definitely, from a fan standpoint, a good thing. Uh, but I am curious to see strategically how managers on the pitching side use their bullpen and also on the other side, how they stack their lineup to try to exploit that. And and I would imagine most managers are going to try to go left, right, left, right as much as they possibly can and have a little more balance in their lineup as a result. Yeah, I think that's probably – I love that. I think that's probably correct. Um, the other thing that's related to that that you reminded me of with the 26-man roster rules is in 2020, the year that you have to start designating players as pitchers – hitters are both am I correct about that so that you can't yeah. have like your Victor Caratini throwing the eighth inning right I believe down six or more runs and it has to be after a certain inning so that's when you can only use a position player um you know the, the guys like Michael Lorenzen I believe will still be able to do whatever because right you know basically they've 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 played they've done both uh and he's more of a pitcher than a, than a position player anyway um but I do think that's going to get rid of a lot of that stuff. And we did see that blow up to the point where, you know, the games weren't as interesting and the the novelty kind of wore off of the position player pitching. It used to be so rare that it was kind of neat and fun to to watch. But I think we're all at the point where you want pitchers to pitch, you want position players to play their position and and that should be the end of it. So yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. Um, I think, the 15-day injured list for pitchers is good, too, uh, because there was a lot of roster manipulation when it got down to the 10 days, and uh, I think that'll get rid of a lot of that stuff as well. Absolutely. Um, looking ahead to 2021, I was really surprised to see that the umpires union had agreed to talk about an electronic strike zone. I thought that was going to be a much bigger fight, but it does look like that is a conversation that is inevitable at this point. I am really curious as somebody who calls all of these games, what you think about the electronic strike zone and what that might look like in coming years. I know that's not for 2020 though. It's just a matter of time. And I think the umpires union even uh, understands that. So, you know, for them, I think there's, there are two choices. You either figure out a way to work uh, through it and negotiate ways that benefit your union or you fight it tooth and nail to the point where you may have more jobs eliminated than not. Uh, so to me, it, it just is a matter of time. And, and when we get to a point where the computerized strike zone is more accurate than humans calling it, then I think it's not only realistic, but I think it'll be implemented pretty quickly. Uh, we're at the point where everything else is reviewable. Those tend to be I mean, it happens every pitch, right? And and I, I get sick of looking at the box and having the, the call wrong. And I, I occasionally get criticized by fans saying, you know, you didn't mention that they got that call wrong. 
I don't like having to say 17 times a game. <laughs> they got that one wrong. They got that one wrong. No, that was a strike, and they called it a ball. That gets pretty onerous after a while and, and, and becomes annoying, I think. So uh, I think for everyone involved, a strike should be a strike. A ball should be a ball, regardless of situation, regardless of the count. And the closer we get to a computerized zone, I think the better off we'll probably be. There are unintended consequences. There probably will be book rule strikes that don't feel uh, that they should be. Uh, and there'll probably be a call where someone will get called out on a pitch and it'll look like it's you know neck high and that'll end the game. But to me, that's probably where we're headed. Um, I I don't love some of the unintended consequences of replay in other sports, but I do feel like in baseball we are getting to a point where that is not something that gets in the way generally that much anymore. It did a couple years ago, but I feel like they've tweaked it to the point where we're getting it right more often than not. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the 17 times a game being like, hey, that call's wrong, because that's basically <laughs> what I do on Twitter two or three times a week, it feels like, when I get cranky about the strikes. And I was like, I'm going to have to come up with something else to do on Twitter during these Cubs games. Aside <laughs> from yeah, pointing out yeah, and this I, call. I, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't want the whole conversation on Twitter to be about bad calls. Uh, it right. should be about the game. It should be about uh, strategy. Um, you know, even the even the play in Houston in the World Series, um, you know, I took some heat because I said the umpires got it right. The book, the rule book is very complicated. And I think when you watch something and it just doesn't feel or look right, the knee-jerk reaction is they screwed it up. Well, Trey Turner didn't put one foot in the runner's lane the entire time, and that lane's been there forever. When that happens, they call you out. So it became a controversy just because it was a weird play. Uh, I wish uh, the game were a little more, well, no, I don't. I, I like that it's an asymmetrical kind of nonlinear game and that it's more like playing chess than it is, you know, playing checkers. But because of that, it does create some confusion and some weird rules. But the fact is they got that one right, in my opinion. If they want to change the rule, that's fine. I don't think they need to change the rule. Uh, I think batters just need to know that, you know, take a couple steps to your right, be in that lane and, we don't have to worry about it down the road. I think, you know, it's really interesting that you bring that um, particular lane violation call from the World Series up. I was thinking about that as we were talking about the zone a little bit, too. That's the call where Davey Martinez got ejected because Trey Turner was deemed to be outside of the lane, if I recall correctly. Yes. And the thing that was really interesting to me about that is actually one of the things I love about baseball. It's the conversations you get to have about the nuances of the rule book. And whether or not that is a lane violation or isn't, or the next inning, a bunch of people were screenshotting Jose Altuve running a very similar path that didn't get called. Well, you and know why it didn't get called? Why is that? Because Tell there me. was no interference. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you know, the, yeah, the, the, those right, two plays are not relatable. Right. Those two plays, you know, they, everyone tried to relate where Altuve was, but the throw beat him. The first baseman right. caught it. And that was it. The Turner throw eluded the runner, and the first baseman didn't catch it. That's that's why that rule was invoked. So, you know, Twitter blows up because of the, you know, hey, oh, look at Altuve. Well, what's the point? He was out, right? <laughs> that's, that's fair. I mean, Twitter or if he is, beats Twitter the throw and there's no interference, he's safe. Like, that's not – interference is not called 
when a runner, you know, he could have zigzagged down the down the line, but when the throw comes from behind you and it doesn't hit the mark, it it that's almost automatic. And so that's that was my point. But it's it's so nuanced that you can't argue it on Twitter because people blow up and they get emotional and they say, well, you know. To me, it wasn't a no-brainer, but it was a call I've seen made dozens of times over the years. Juan Pierre in 2006, it probably happened to him 10 times when he was a Cub. (laughs) He'd he'd lay down a butt, throw it, hit him in the shoulder. He'd be called out almost every time because he wasn't in the lane. And that's that's just how they do it. Yeah, nuance in 256 characters isn't exactly. (laughs) Forget it. Yeah, you're not convincing anybody on Twitter. Okay, so I want to talk about a little bit how you got started because we as Cubs fans are spoiled by you and JD, but we like to know like where your inspiration comes for, from as far as what kind of play-by-play announcer you are because as far as I'm concerned, and I've listened to a lot in a lot of different cities for a lot of different teams, I mean, there's, there's hands down your best in the business. But where, do you, where did you get your inspiration from on your style and, and how you do what you do? Almost 100% from listening to and then getting to know personally Ernie Harwell, uh, the longtime Tigers radio broadcaster, I believe uh, ultimately 42 seasons with the Tigers. I uh, passed away a few years ago. Um, I, I was very, very fortunate to, to get to know Ernie. Uh, you don't often get to meet your heroes. You don't often get to not only meet them, but get to know them. Uh, Ernie not only wrote me a letter, uh, a quick note when I got my first full-time job with the Florida Marlins in 02. Uh, he called me personally after I got the Cubs job prior to 2005 to congratulate me. Uh, spent some time with him uh, in Detroit uh, shortly before he became ill. Uh, and, and and eventually passed away, but he was the reason I wanted to to do this for a living. Uh, he's from Georgia, but he always felt like he was one of our own uh, in Michigan, and just never let you know that you know the game was bad. Everything was always good. Baseball is always fun, whether the Tigers were down twelve to one or winning fourteen to nothing. He kind of had the same sort of delivery all the time, and that steady nature really uh, meant a lot to me. His partner was Paul Carey, who had the voice of God, as Ernie said, and those two were my favorites. Uh, And in fact, coincidentally, uh, when I was a junior in high school, I worked at a radio station uh, near my hometown, and it was eventually bought by Mike Carey, uh, who is Paul's <laughs> nephew. So that was really neat to kind of have that connection as well. And I would say Ernie and Paul are, are the reason uh, I'm doing what I do. And uh, if you ever get a chance to, to jump on YouTube uh, and just, you know, Google Ernie Harwell Tigers or Ernie Harwell Paul Carey and just listen to their banter and the way they, they go about it. I don't know if you'll hear any any of me in that, but um, when push comes to shove, I definitely think about how Ernie would handle a situation on the air, and uh, he's by far my biggest influence. That's awesome. Well, I know that you, um, am I right in saying that you called games at at Milwaukee for a while for the Brewers? Well, I filled in with with Bill Schroeder filling in for a Matt Vaskersian back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. 
uh, for three seasons before I, I got hired full-time uh, in Florida. So, yeah, I got my start in Milwaukee, uh, went to, uh, took my talents to South Beach, and then uh, back to the Midwest. <laughs> so what about, to you, as far as calling games, makes Wrigley Field and the fans and the whole experience, what makes that so much different than anywhere that you've been? Oh, it's it's it's, it's totally right. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I think the first basic thing about Wrigley Field in terms of broadcasting games is the conditions weather-wise are always a topic. And it's even more so a topic when the wind or the temperature or the rain or some sort of other issue is not a factor uh, because you always expect the wind to be blowing in some direction, either in or out or cross. when you have those days or rare nights when it's still, that is a topic of conversation. <laughs> I've never done a game at Wrigley Field during which the weather hasn't been a pretty early conversation in a ball game. So that's number one. Number two, the quirks of the ballpark, uh, the fact that it's right on top of the field, the fans' view is unmatched in baseball, uh, the, the views of the neighborhood. Uh, the rooftops, all of that stuff, and the hustle and bustle around the ballpark. Uh, again, you just can't you can't replicate that anywhere else other than than Fenway Park in Boston. So it's a very special place to work. There's nothing like doing a game there. The seventh inning stretch is is, is unique, as we know. Uh, so there's there's it's an experience that you have to experience firsthand. It's not something anyone could ever tell you about, and then you could really verbalize. Uh, until you've been there probably multiple times. So, and I, and from what I understand, I think I read that you um, probably on Bleed Cubby Blue when you were answering questions for readers, you said something about how the renovations for the press boxes kick in this off season. Are are you so excited about this? <laughs> like, is this like, like a promotion for you? Like, yay! I finally get temperature controlled booths. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I we haven't seen it yet. I think right now they're they're just started. Uh, renovating it. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about it. I think that's the, the only downside. And uh, it, when push comes to shove with no climate control, I would always take cold over hot because at least with cold, you can put on another layer when it's, you know, 98 degrees, high humidity and no, no wind. Um, I, I just, I hate sweating while I'm working and there's just no, there's no place to go. We don't have a lot of those days. Uh, at Wrigley, but the ones we have, it, it's it's a tough environment. Uh, so I'm happier about air conditioning than heat, but I'll definitely take the heat uh, early in the season. Uh, our windows will definitely always be open as they've been, but we'll have the ability to close them if uh, it starts raining sideways. And uh, yeah, it's good. I never complain about our our, condi- our our situation because fans don't care and they don't want to hear it anyway. Um, but with a ballpark that's as old as it is and a press box that hasn't been renovated in, in 30 years or so, I definitely look forward to all the upgrades. Well, I kind of always chuckle at you guys, too, when you're talking about the temperature and stuff, because you guys, between you and J.D., you always have some funny comeback about it. And it's like we know that, you know, being Cubs fans and having been to Wrigley as many times as some of us have been there, we know that the weather is just unpredictable most days. So, And we're in it. You know, that's the other reason we leave the windows open is to be able to really speak about the conditions. You know, we're experiencing it with everybody else. And I've always felt that's important. 
Absolutely. And it, and it brings us there. Like it makes us feel like we're there with you. So, and that's, you know, that's another part of your job that you're so good at. Like we feel like we're at the game with you, which is fantastic. So I am really curious and then I'll stop peppering you about all your um, personal fandom here, but I really want to know, take yourself away from the play-by-play Len. Cubs fan Len, who is your favorite Cubs player? Current or all time? Uh, you know that's that's. I I'll take both. I want both. <laughs> well, I would. You know, my 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 default answer is Derek Lee, uh, and I was with Derek in Florida oh. and for a long time here in Chicago. He's one of my favorite people in the world, but he just was. He he had everything you wanted. He 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 played every day, without complaint. Uh, never made any headlines with what he said. He was a good teammate. Uh, he could run. He could hit for average. He took walks. He hit home runs. He was as good a defender as anyone I've seen. There was nothing about him that you would change. And so for me, Derek Lee is, in terms of guys I've been around in this sport, Cub or otherwise, uh, Derek Lee would be at the top of the list. Current Cubs, it's hard. There's so many. Um, I probably am, you know, if it's if it's someone I'm close with, probably Anthony Rizzo since, you know, I, I, I've known him since he was just a baby, you know, when he came over from the Padres. Uh, Bryant uh, and Rizzo would, would be at the top of the list, but I love watching Javier Baez do his thing. And you know, in terms of just watching and being in awe of a player as a fan, it's really hard to, to go against Javier Baez. Um, the other guy I want to mention, and I've talked about this and J.D. and I do on the air all the time, but he's going to go down as one of the best relievers in Cubs history and, and you know, is, is often a lightning rod guy because of his role. Uh, but aside from last year, you know, Pedro Strope, uh, has had a terrific Cubs career, and he might be the friendliest, nicest, sweetest human being I've ever met in this game. And, you know, wherever he ends up at the end of his playing career, my firm hope and belief, and I do think this will happen, is that he ends up uh, back with the organization in one form or another because he's just the, the sweetheart of a guy and Everybody who's ever been around him in that clubhouse or in the traveling party would tell you the same thing. So I gave you a lot of names there, but I would say Baez <laughs> is the most exciting. You know, Rizzo and Bryant, you know, I've known for a long time. And then, and then I have a very soft spot in my heart for Pedro Strope. I mean, you're speaking my language on the Pedro Strope Hello. thing. Yeah, I, I do not think here. we appreciate him nearly enough. <laughs> yeah, he's the best. Just I just love the guy. Yeah, and you you can't go wrong with any of the players that we have right now. There's definitely you're gonna be talking to somebody that absolutely favors one of them over the other, and and you you couldn't go wrong. You could pick any of them, and and they would work. I mean, it just we don't have the luxury of getting to know them like you do. So to hear that side of it is just like unfathomable to me. Like like you know him. <laughs> that's, that's you know, really I feel cool. like I'm I feel like I'm sliding Kyle Hendricks. I think if you talk to JD, that's the guy he would probably say because he's a uh, you know he's a pitcher. Uh, but Kyle is steady as she goes, and to be able to see a uh, you know a pitcher without a lot of fanfare become one of the best in the league. 
uh, over the course of his career and just the way he goes about his business on the mound is is pretty remarkable. Uh, John Lester, <laughs> arguably the greatest free agent signing in the history of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, so you're right. It's a, it's a very long list, and we're fortunate to to be around them on a daily basis. And you know, for me to to get to know them on a personal level, away from the field a little bit. Well, I mean, it's I know, true. Oh, okay. go ahead, Andy. I was just going to say, I know Sarah probably wants to wrap this up soon here because you know we're we're hitting time, and we could talk to you probably for another five hours. But I personally just want to say thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. It is, it's surreal to me that like to actually get to have a conversation with you and hear this side of things. And I really hope that someday soon, hopefully CubsCon, I can introduce myself and we can maybe chat a little bit more baseball. I promise I won't keep you for five hours. <laughs> no problem. I've, I've enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's gone quickly, believe me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, Len, you are totally right. This is a golden age of Cubs baseball, and frankly, you can't go wrong with anybody on this team. Uh, I, I just kind of have to ask now, though, that you mentioned Kyle Hendricks being JD's uh, probably favorite at the end there. Did you all see the pitching ninja Kyle Hendricks alter ego that went up last week or the week before? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> okay, uh, no, so. I'm, no, I'm interested. <laughs> This is on our Twitter account. I'll make sure to at you on it so you can see it. But the um, but Pitching Ninja did his awards for 2019. In 2019, his best alter ego was Savage Kyle. And it's as if, what would Kyle Hendricks be like if he talked a lot of trash? <laughs> oh, that's great. It's so great. It's so great. You'll love it. It's so great. All right, um, I will definitely find it. Len, thank you so much for making some time during this holiday week to be with us. This is such a treat for us. Such a treat for our listeners, like Andy said. Love to uh, take a minute and introduce ourselves at CubsCon. And thank you again for coming on Cup of Cubby Blue. I hope you have a great end to your year. Sarah, Andy, appreciate it very much. Uh, Happy New Year and uh, go Cubs in 2020. Absolutely. There's no better way to wrap up than that. You can find all of us on Twitter. Len, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, It's pretty easy, at Len Casper, Casper with a K. And, uh, yeah, I try to try to keep it real when I can <laughs> he's a great follow um you can find me at at bcb underscore sarah you can find andy at at b-r-y-z underscore blue you can find both of us at at cup of cubby blue and until next time we'll be counting down the days until pitchers and catchers report we miss you cubs bye <laughs>